Welcome to Speak the Truth, the podcast that's devoted to educating, encouraging, and equipping the individual and local church. Today's podcast is going to be what is biblical counseling and what a treat it is for Speak the Truth because our co-host is Jeremy Lellick, who is the author of Biblical Counseling Basics, The Roots, Beliefs, and Future. And so we not only are going to get to talk about what is biblical counseling, but someone who knows it all, right? Bringing the wisdom today. Well, let's hope so, but I don't know at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously we all get to learn and grow. And so mm-hmm. thank you for tuning in. And one of the questions I get a lot um, from a counseling standpoint is what is biblical counseling and how is that different from Christian counseling? So how about we start there? How would you define the difference between the two? It's a great question. Um, I would say that the Christian counseling will tend to begin with secular theories and secular literature um, and then try to integrate biblical truth into that. So for example, um, someone might adopt what's called a person-centered perspective of counseling. And that's a very robust model created uh, by a guy named Carl Rogers. And they'll become experts in that particular theory. And then they'll learn how to Christianize it, so to speak, to bring other uh, biblical truths into that theory. That's called integration. Uh, biblical counseling, on the other hand, we attempt to start from the Bible and ask the big questions that psychology has asked recently, such as who are we? Why do we do the things that we do? Um, how do we change things of that nature? We try to answer those questions from scripture exclusively and see how far down the road we can get. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I've tried to explain is a way of saying Christian counseling is a, is a counselor who is a Christian, but can still counsel um, from a therapy standpoint versus Mm -hmm. a biblical counselor. You're not going to get a biblical counselor. Who's not a Christian. Um, Right. I mean, and and be able Mm -hmm. to meet the person where they are, whether they're a believer or unbeliever, it's still always with the foundation of the Bible. Yeah. And I would even say what, we found, uh, which is why I think there's a huge distinction between Christian counseling and biblical counseling is because uh, clients that we've had come to Truth Renewed, they received Christian counseling, but there wasn't really scripture mm-hmm. in, in the counseling. Yeah. And so you almost had to be explicit in calling it biblical counseling because, you know, if you call it biblical counseling, you're going to get scripture. That's correct. Yeah. That's a very common thing that people will go to a Christian counseling provider. There's no prayer. Um, there's very often little scripture. And if it there is a scripture, it's just like a band-aid. Go, go pray over this particular passage on anxiety. But to the biblical counseling seeks to uh really implement biblical truths at a deeper level and and have people begin to integrate that into their own lives. And I will say this, because we don't want to fall too far on the other extreme. Biblical counseling does not oppose science. Biblical counseling is not against going and reading a good book on depression written by a secular author, but right. we have the the capacity because we have learned theology to transpose those things into a biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good clarity. Yeah, that's that's really important too because um, I, I know that there's a lot of people who are a little confused about biblical counseling again, like we mentioned Christian counseling, but then how do we how do we help educate people um, in just kind of in the day to day, whether, you know, you got a couple guys, you know, at work in corporate America who are talking about counseling and what are some helpful things that we could give them just to kind of help make those distinctions? Any, 
anything we could offer them? Well, I think we we need to recognize that biblical counseling can take on various forms. So if you come to see me for biblical counseling on a professional level, you're going to set an appointment. You're going to come at that time. We'll spend an hour together and we'll do some counseling and there may be some follow-up homework. That's definitely a form of biblical counseling. But another form of biblical counseling is sitting across the table from someone over a cup of coffee and they're confessing to you that their spouse just committed adultery. As a Christian, we all need to ask ourselves the question, would we be prepared to counsel or disciple or comfort or encourage that person from a biblical perspective? That would definitely be considered biblical counseling. Yes, and amen. I think that's probably the missing piece is most people understand counseling from that professional nature mm-hmm. that you just spoke to, but it's the the everyday counselor like the really informalness of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. yeah, which which technically it's obviously discipleship. That's what counseling is. But for the most part, what we're seeing in churches today is they're not handling it within the church. They're sending them out to that professional context, which is great, but often so they're talking um, or they're sending them to people they don't really know that they're counseling from a biblical perspective. And even though it's Christian counseling, have they done the due diligence to make sure that the counselor is actually counseling from the Bible and pointing mm-hmm. them back to Christ, which is yeah, important. That's good. I'm glad you brought that up, Shauna, because that's kind of another piece that I think Jeremy does a really good job in his book, mm-hmm. um, demonstrating, okay, what, what was going on in the culture at the time to where it was okay to go do that to where now you've got people who are psychologized and they don't know how to draw a distinction between, okay, I'm a Christian and I believe in truth. I believe in Bible, but I don't know how that relates to my manic depression, or I don't know how that mm-hmm. relates to what, whatever, whatever diagnosis that they were given in, um, you know, professional counseling that they were given. Um, how, how could we help those people, our listeners kind of help reconcile maybe that, uh, that gap and misunderstanding of it's not either, or it's kind of a both and, and what happened in our culture with that shift? Yeah, it's a very interesting history that that we have in in our culture. A lot of people don't realize, but based on the teachings of scripture, the early church fathers viewed soul care as a priority for the the pastoral mm-hmm. person. So you have guys like St. Augustine, and there's one author out there who's a, a great historian, Morton Hunt. He's a secular guy, but he wrote the history of psychology. And in that book says that St. Augustine's uh, psychology, his view of soul care dominated the, uh, the culture for eight centuries. And then you have a guy like St. Thomas Aquinas who found it extremely important to deal with the psyche or the soul. Um, you move forward and you find fellas like Martin Luther, who, in my opinion, has written one of the most uh, profound and entertaining books on Bondage of the Will. The Bondage of the Will, which is yeah. a which is a book on human motivation. Mm-hmm. Why do we do what we do? You have uh, moving forward the Puritans. Many say they were probably the most distinguished physicians of the soul mm-hmm. that in the history of the church. A Richard Baxter with his directory, his That's Christian right. directory. That's right. Yeah, it's like twelve hundred pages. And and there have there's been research uh, that has shown through historical evidence that their care was far more effective than what you would typically get in a modern day mental health hospital um, because it was true soul care is one anothering. It was 
If you, if you, if a person was in a manic phase, then you had believers that would go and stay with that person 24 hours and comfort them until they move beyond that. This was before medicine, obviously. Isn't that funny though? And you kind of fast forward and we look at, and it, of course this, this isn't a dig on, you know, companies providing or organizations providing, you know, facilities to have that full demand. You know, when somebody's in that type of mode, they need that full-time care. Mm -hmm. It's just good to know historically though, like that was the church. That was the extent or the implication of one anothering. And the Puritans back then that they understood that because at that time, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that they were the ones that, that, were responsible, the culture looked to them to take on that level of ministry and soul care. They Absolutely. weren't looking to science. They were looking no. to any of these things to do that. That literally belonged to the church. That's correct. So where did it get lost then? So what happened is modernism hit and modernism was, it, it was a movement that said, if you can't measure it under a microscope, or if you can't figure it out through some statistical formula, um, then it's not, uh, valid. And so what this did to spirituality, it, it really put it in a place of suspicion within the, the mainstream culture. So science began to take over and it was, in, it was within the modernist movement and the scientific movement that psychology was birthed through a guy named Wilhelm Wundt. They would most say he had the first psychological laboratory in, in the field. Interesting. And then you have Freud and he took off and created a lot of very interesting, uh, complex, uh, theoretical ideas about human nature and why we do the things that we do. And from him, you just have all of the grand uh, theories that are out there and there are hundreds and hundreds of them. I find that to be so interesting that the scientific community, if you can't put it under a microscope, it's immaterial. But they would, they it, would question that. Is there such a thing? And uh, at the time they won the day. And during that time also when modernism was soaring uh, the conservative seminary, the conservative church was having to fight battles within the culture, such as um, the sufficiency of scripture, mm -hmm. the infallibility of scripture, because seminaries were beginning to lean heavily in, in towards the left. And so the conservative seminaries were fighting things like that. And the whole, I, the whole conversation about soul care and psychology wasn't even on the radar. And it was a time if Pallison has made a statement in some article somewhere that during that time, the church lost her heartland. She lost the, her, uh, dedication to the care of souls. Wow. Yeah. And just really quick, uh, for our listeners, um, he, you mentioned Pallison. Who are you? Who's that exactly? I'm sorry. That's uh, okay. Dr. David Pallison. Uh, he is one of the foremost, probably the foremost thinker in the biblical counseling movement alive today. Um, he would, I guess, be considered part of the second movement. He is up at the Christian Counseling Education Foundation. He's the executive director in Philadelphia. We need to keep Dr. Pallison in our prayers. He, yeah. he has cancer and it's pretty severe. So make sure if you're listening to the podcast to, to lift him up daily mm -hmm. uh, because we, we desperately need him to, to be in the movement mm -hmm. right now. And actually um, we can put his material in the show notes as well. Fantastic. Uh, he's got a, to your point, he's got a lot of material. And for our listeners, that's going to be an ongoing list in our show notes where, because we're going to be referring to lots of biblical counselors. And I think even mm -hmm. in your book, maybe second chapter, I believe, where you just kind of go through first, first generation biblical counseling, second generation, and kind of now we're getting into that third generation. That's right. That, am, that's I, am I getting that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So yeah, so that we'll, we'll definitely put that material in the show notes because it's it's really good. So just keeping it moving here, Jeremy, what would you say, you know, kind of after we've provided a little bit of a historical landscape of biblical counseling, what do you see today where now being in the third generation of biblical counseling, how can we begin to impact our culture. So when I, what I mean by that is for those who are going into work, whatever their sphere of influence that God has put them around, how can we equip them just informally through conversation? How can we help equip them to, to realize not only what biblical counseling is, but encourage people to that door for help? Yes. Uh, encourage people that are seeking help. Yeah. Or just through conversation. Cause again, uh, you mentioned earlier, the one anothering that we do and work context or whatever. I mean, you're going to have a couple of relationships where people are sharing personal information and they're looking to you to provide some type of advice or counsel on direction or what they could do, or just where they've given you the ability to speak into their life. That's a great question. And I'm going to, I'm going to steal from Dr. Paul Tripp, who's another second generation guy. He was a colleague and worked with uh, Dr. Pallison up at uh, Christian Counseling Education Foundation. He's written a a seminal book that I think anyone that's interested in discipleship must read this book. It's called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Yes, I agree. Yeah, Shawna, you got a, you got a little piece on that that really quick. Oh man, that's why I'm a counselor, really. At the end of the day is, is, is reading that book. There was so much truth and conviction that it brought in my life and the urgency of what needed to be done. I mean, it just lit me on fire. And so I'm thankful for, for Paul Tripp in a lot of ways and just his way of taking scripture and just, he's got some really meaty one-liners. I mean, he's like dude, those Puritans, man. They were, like they would have been totally incredible tweeters. Gifted, though. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited actually <laughs> to see him at the conference coming up and just kind of what he, he's just really, he's really gifted in, in a lot of ways and just the way he brings light or the scripture into light and making it very relevant. And so that's a great book recommendation, Jeremy. I love that one. Yeah. Awesome. And I'll, I'll actually take that a little further when we were going to seminary. Uh, we were actually going to uh, Eternity Bible College out in California. It was started by Francis Chan. Mm. Uh, Shauna was able to go to seminary with me for free. And one of the classes that they had was Intro to Discipleship Counseling. And that mm-hmm. was the course book, mm-hmm. wow. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And it was actually mm-hmm. that book that really was the trajectory that got us going. And the next thing you know, we find ourselves at a CCEF conference mm. and Truth Renewed was born. Right. Wow. That's it. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, just to bring a full circle, it was, yeah, uh, that's cool. Yeah. But so back we, to what you were saying. Jimmy. Yeah. Sorry. That was like, <laughs> no, that, that's, that's good. Cause it's, I mean, phenomenal. it solidifies what you, you just drop said. Someone who's important to us. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Good. Well, I, the reason you guys probably resonated with him is, is Paul brings this big thing called biblical counseling that can feel intimidating and sound intimidating because people feel I'm not a counselor. I'm not equipped to do that, but it brings it to the street level. And he, and he makes it very accessible to anyone. And he, the, uh, the model or the, the, the flow that he recommends is love, know, speak, do. So when you ask the question, how can we become more equipped? It's really captured in those four words. And, and very briefly, love is first. And I can attest to that. When I became a counselor, I was extremely insecure. I thought that I was going to get into counseling and just make people feel better, but realize it's, it's a lot of hard work. And sometimes people would leave the meeting, not liking me a whole lot because I was pressing them on certain issues. And there were times I would literally look out my window and just pray that someone would not show up because Mm -hmm. it felt Mm -hmm. so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day just praying in one of the, because my first client that I ever had was an LPC. 
talk about intimidating. Right. And I had said, I'm not going to do marriage counseling because I'm, I'm not, I've never studied that. And she came in for marriage counseling. So two, two double whammies against me. But I remember just sitting one day overwhelmed with anxiety and praying. And it felt, it, it seemed like the Lord spoke to my heart and just said, love the people that come in here. And that's really the, 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 open door to biblical counseling. If someone comes to you, don't feel like you have to know all the answers. Don't feel like you have to fix that situation. None of that. What needs to trigger in your soul is this person sitting in front of me is someone who needs the love of Christ Mm -hmm. and they don't need me to talk for 30 minutes. They need me to listen. And that's the second piece in, in Paul Tripp's no, get to know the person. What is their story? What is their struggle? What do they think is the, is the solution or what are their goals? Love them, know them. And then there will come a time and it might be that first time you meet. It may be several times later. Then you begin to speak truth. You go back from what they, whatever they've shared in terms of you getting to know them and you go back and begin to search the scriptures. What does the Bible have to say about adultery? What does it have to say about forgiveness? What does it have to say about church discipline in a situation like that? And then you go back and prepared with God's word and, and being assured the spirit is with you and you begin to speak. And in that speaking, you're often going to call people to act to begin to do something that's different than what they've been doing that has caused the breakdown or that has caused the, the, the intensity of the struggle that they're wrestling with. That's good. Especially on that speak truth part, which is a good, um, a good segue just from the podcast standpoint is we, well, I mean, we're talking about what is biblical counseling, but it's not just say, Hey, we want to define it for you, but we also want to continue forward in our podcast to speak specifically in certain areas to empower and encourage people that it isn't so scary. It really is discipleship. And Mm -hmm. as you're studying the word yourself, just opening up the word with others and, and really sharing what God is teaching you is that part of counseling. I mean, you are the everyday counselor. And so, um, so I love that. I mean, just again, how, how it brings it around full circle and and what that looks like. And what's funny about that, you know, what we're sitting here kind of systematizing a little bit, as far as Mm -hmm. a biblical counseling process, the reality is these things come natural to us, Mm. right? Yes. Um, who doesn't want to have somebody who will sit down and, and, and listen and have them listen to you because you're struggling with something that, that's what Paul pretty much is articulating, not Paul Tripp, but Paul in, you know, uh, the New Testament, the apostle Paul is in the one anotherings. That's, that's the intentionality of biblical counseling. Mm-hmm. So what we're kind of sounding like we're kind of systematizing now is naturally what we're trying to do intentionally with people. Yes. So that's, that's good. Yes. Well, when Jeremy mentioned, you know, the biblical counseling movement and, you know, our hearts and, and what, how we want to, you know, just educate and empower the local church, you know, it comes to two areas of one the church, the church feeling like it's important. It's a, it's a need, just like they pour into children's ministry and student ministry, you know, having a recovery and a pastoral care, soul care type ministry is just as important. And not only that, but the church are the people. And so I think one of the things that really hinders us from discipling and loving well, and kind of what you you talked about, and even just listening is that time restraints. I feel like we're overburdened mm-hmm. and um, we're not stewarding our time well, and, and therefore we're not really being as intentional with people as we need to be, um, not only the chaos of our own world, but being able to speak into other people. And so therefore it's just easier to send those that are hurting or broken to someone else because I don't have time for that. And so how could we encourage the local church, obviously the the people 
to, to, to make biblical counseling important in their life. Yeah. And Jeremy, definitely feel free to speak into this too, man. I, you know, for, for me being a discipleship pastor, I see a huge discrepancy with the way that we do Sunday mornings with the way that we minister to people during the week. In other words, we can bring in and and preach an amazing sermon and people are quote unquote edified that day. But then when we begin to live life with people and we see how broken and jacked up they are Mm -hmm. and realizing that discipleship is messy, it's dirty work, it's hard work, it's taxing. Relationships are good relation and good intentional relationships are demanding and taxing. And I think as, as the local church, we've kind of gotten into that, that routine of just going Sundays and kind of the, the reality is you could spin this into like three or four different like ways really, because it's kind of both. And it's like, there's the culture where, you know, we're so busy, we're so individualized that it's kind of crept into the church, you know, where, mm-hmm. uh, we, you do you and I'll do me. And, um, I have my, my regular family and they know me, but eh, my church family, I can keep them at a distance and I can control what I share, what I don't share. I can even be involved in a community group. But, and- the, but the level of transparency and being authentic in those moments aren't there. And I think there's all these different ways, like levels of why, uh, you know, certain people aren't authentic and transparency, maybe like the trusting part, or even if I share this, what's the point, or maybe I even have to, to act or be a certain way. Um, so these are definitely some good follow-up podcast ideas of how can we break through that and to encourage other people to, to be real and don't just say, Oh, well, no one else in the group is this way, but you be that way and be the first one Mm -hmm. to kind of step out and be intentional in the questions that you ask and things that you you, you do and say, no, that's good because I, I think that's how you change a church culture. Uh, that's how you transform the church culture. It's, you know, it's confronting the way that the church culture is now and with that intentionality help changing that church culture. Yeah. So how would you, Jeremy, like encourage the church to change the culture? Like what would be, I don't know, man, a good tip first step. What, what kind of thoughts do you have? On I think that? a great, a great first step is if you have small groups and things like that is to get your leaders trained uh, because Leadership development. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The per I have sat in small groups where the facilitator was not very polished. Not that you have to be perfectly polished to, to do a small group, but because they weren't, it created this angst in the room and people were just very afraid to open up because mm. they felt if we do, it's going to, this might, devolve into something that I don't want. Mm-hmm. So I just think having good small group leaders that are trained on how to facilitate discipleship and maybe in biblical counseling, mm-hmm. uh, that I think that would help. I think also creating a culture where it's allowed to not be okay and then not having had answers. So right. when people, a lot of times, if a person opens up with this very painful stuff and then you have other people in the group start giving Bible verses or pat answers that can shut it down fairly quickly because that, that just communicates. I'm really not listening. Mm-hmm. I'm really not caring. I'm not knowing. Mm-hmm. I just want to give you a, a quick pat answer. So just if, and, and that's where a facilitator could come in and just say, Hey, great thought, but let's make sure when people are sharing their souls at this level, 
that we're giving a good dose of listening and compassion before we say something. Oh, yeah, that that's so good. That's good because I can tell you. And listening, I know, we always want to fix it right away. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not speaking into it necessarily well, directly or to, praying right after, you know. Here's so, something very interesting also, just on that note. Yeah. There's some great research out that says the greatest way to build relationship in a in between couples or in a group is through empathetic understanding. If if I can empathize with you, which means I'm not fixing you, I'm not telling you you shouldn't feel a certain way, I'm not quoting a Bible verse at you, I'm truly trying to get into your shoes and experience the struggle and reflecting to you that I care about that struggle. I don't have an answer, but I can. that builds trust. And I could see that being a very powerful thing within a small group is teaching people just what it means to listen and truly have a compassionate ear for the others in the room that are struggling. And I, I think that's really good too, because that's, that's kind of what we see in the church too, is you get those pat answers. And really what that's articulating to the person who you're speaking to is somehow implying that you've arrived. Mm-hmm. You throw the verse on yourself. So it works for me. Why doesn't it work for you? You just got, and it just doesn't work that way. Right. And it, yeah, and it does, it shuts it down. People, uh, people don't want to share. And then what you end up with is you end up with a community group that all they do is they, they come together and they just sit around and they talk about scripture. Yes. They're not actually applying it to the relationships in or their life. Or offering accountability. Right. You know, I think that's key too. Mm-hmm. And you have to. If you, if you don't enter into the person's life, then it'd be really easy for them to hide their sin or, or, uh, their, or, or kind of sit and continue in the, in the struggles It almost become like their lifestyle. And all the while they're living in this community and then something happens in their marriage and you're like, wait, what, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, if we were living intentionally with one another and really talking through that and offering accountability, then we would hopefully be able to see and attack the sin together in one another and not feel like you're, you're alone. Yeah. And it, it's funny you say accountability, cause I think you could even nuance that a little bit in the way of saying accountability. I think what we've done in the local church a lot is where we just create the group and we reduce the group to, we show up, you suck, I suck, man, we're both struggling at this. And <laughs> we just sit around and talk about how bad mm-hmm. we're like struggling and yeah. we're not getting any better. And for 45 minutes, we sit there and we're the entire time we're focusing on negativity and mm. really at the end of the day saying, I can overcome this sin. Yeah. Instead of removing and replacing, which is what scripture talks about as a new creation. Mm-hmm. And so just having those types of, so yeah, what you're saying, Jeremy is good. And I, and I, I just, the implication of seeing how the local church could change just at that granular level, yes. you know, in, in community groups and stuff like that. So that's good. That's good. Um, the other thing, you yeah. know, I, I think that's obviously a great place for the local church to start, you know, to me, you know, when you think of like being on mission for the community, one of the things we're definitely seeing at truth or nude is because we offer counseling for free. That's such a huge need out there to where a lot of people can't afford not only to get counseling, but the sufficient help needed. And so I also think a great way to bring it back in the local church is to empower leadership that can be intentional in these areas mm-hmm. that really have a gift of caring and having that a passionate heart. That's okay to get, you know, in the mud and in the brokenness with other people. And, and when churches are able to provide that, they're not understanding that that's actually how you're able to bring people to, to Jesus, to be on mission for the community. Um, because when, when you're at a certain point where you're, you're completely broken and you have no other options, you're going to go where someone is offering help. Mm-hmm. And so we want to help them in the church. If you can't get the help in the church, then it, I mean, it just doesn't even make sense when you really think about it. And so to me, that's, it, it, I don't know how it's become lost as a priority 
for the local churches to have a soul counseling ministry. You know, I mean, like what, what is going on there? Man, that could be like a whole nother episode. Okay. I think that let's do that. Let's end there and let's pick that up on the next episode of speak the truth. So thank you guys for joining us today. We hope that you have a, um, at least a little snapshot of what biblical counseling is. And I hope that the Lord is stirring in your heart to do something and join us in this mission for a biblical counseling movement back into the local church. 